it intensified in 1991 when my brother developed schizophrenia, which is probably the worst of all mental illnesses. It's horrible. The brain center that processes center, sensory input is damaged, broken. So it, it sends experiences to the person who has the illness, sends experiences that aren't rooted in reality, audio hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, and those seem as real as my voice talking to you right now. How does someone with a brain operating like that even tell? What's the difference, real, not real? It also impacts part of the brain that has self-conception. So the idea of getting someone to understand their ill can be really challenging. It impacts logic motivation, some centers of memory. And so we wondered at that point, why, since science knew ever since brain scans had been invented decades before and they could first study inside the brain, why when science knew this was an illness, the treatment was barely accessible? And now with research of over 60 years, Science knows that treatment works for the vast majority of people and that there's a whole buffet, a whole spectrum and combination that may be specific, not one size fits all in care. So why, why, why isn't care broadly available? People who are sick can't get access to treatment or maybe they get a prescription for a pill but they can't see a psychiatrist or a doctor more than once or twice a month. We see it on our streets, but way more pervasively, we see it in private people's homes, people struggling with a loved one at home who can't get care. And it's super angry that with all the advances just on the medication front, never mind all the advances on the therapeutic front outside of medication, there are things like long-acting antipsychotics that where you can have a shot and it'll last that's not approved by most insurance. Most states won't cover it. So instead, we ask these people who have brain illnesses to remember to take a pill every day or twice a day. That's hard enough for us if we don't have brain impairment. But that's what we do. And even with just medication having been at a decent level since the mid-1990s, L.A. County Jail is still the largest psychiatric treatment facility in the country. What's the problem? Why are we like this? Well, the problem researchers know is stigma. All the research points that these embedded attitudes that have been in our culture for centuries and then now decades, these attitudes that we have are locked and not open to new information. The word stigma comes from a Greek verb that means to carve, like a tattoo, as a mark of shame or punishment or disgrace. It was used to refer to the signs burnt into the skin of enslaved people, sometimes as a sign of ownership or sometimes as a form of punishment. 
change people's attitudes. And so the first thing he looked at is, well, let's do lectures. We'll lecture people on the reality of what it is. And people will learn the facts, and they'll know. Well, studies showed barely any change in attitudes. So I was like, well, maybe we need to name the myths and name what is false about what we as a culture believe, and then name the facts. Well, that didn't work either. He found one thing worked, and that was to meet someone and get to know someone who was ill, regardless of the illness, depression, bipolar disorder, OCD, schizophrenia. You get to know the person and make an emotional connection. In our parlance here as people of faith, we are recognizing the image of God in someone else and granting the dignity the really great news is you don't have to meet a person in person. Patrick Corrigan found that if you met someone in an accurate depiction in video or an accurate depiction in a book, that that would qualify as knowing, that that would impact attitude. It's remarkable. generalize or move out of this world of mental illness and look at it as a way to show how ingrained attitudes can shift, we can see that we don't always realize the boundaries we may have in our heads about any population, boundaries created by culture. And we may know our own attitudes and think that they're completely valid, but we, and we won't know they're off base unless we open our hearts to an experience of another person. Shattering stigma is and was the key in the LGBTQ plus movement, the key to shifting people's attitudes about same-gender marriage, about same-gender rights in our church, about LGBTQ plus ordination. Meeting someone, knowing and it helped birth in the 1970s, the real push for people to come out. And stigma can be cultural from the outside, but it also can be stigma that's within. We may absorb, if we're in any one of these worlds where there's stigmatizing views on the outside, we may absorb them into ourselves and think, yeah, I'm awful. Absorb that shame, absorb that hatred, absorb that conception of about religion, attitudes about Christianity. I look at the issue of religion being antithetical to science and all the arguments that, you know, religion is a mythology. But the Episcopal Church had a presiding bishop before the one we have now, a woman named Catherine Jeffers Shorey. And she, before she was ordained, was an oceanographer. She was a scientist. And 
that seemed like cognitive dissonance for a lot of people, that you're a bishop and you're a scientist. She'd be asked, how do you reconcile science with faith? And she would blow that out. She'd say, that barrier is false. She'd always describe the healthy coexistence between religion and science, the interrelationship between religion and science. Religion, she says, is all about asking questions of meaning, exploring the nature of love, exploring the nature of relationship and community, and how transformation happens, how reconciliation happens, how wholeness comes to being. And science, complementary, explores the observable, measurable mechanisms of the world, the processes of the world, how things came to be, how they operate, what's out I'll say for me, when I was coming back to faith way back when, just seeing her, hearing how smart she was and how scientific she was, was internally affirming. I'm not so weird believing this stuff. And another key moment on that science-religion reconciliation for me was joining a prayer group. And the prayer group was led by a man who, after several months, came out or mentioned that he was one of the par- cardiologists in Los Angeles. Wow, leading a class on prayer. In our personal experience, just in this congregation and the time that I've been here, we have biologists, we have astronomers, computer scientists, doctors, and more. So our firsthand experience can stretch the boundaries that may exist in our hearts and that experience out in the world of being an embodied scientist, let's say, an embodied person with mental illness, an embodied person, LGBTQ+, that experience out in the world, sharing that light can make change. So, I wonder if some of this rigidity is what is operative in this morning's gospel reading for the disciples who are up on There's this dramatic moment. This is called the transfiguration story. This dramatic moment for them where they see Jesus' face change and he's glowing white. Now these are guys, Peter, James, and John, who had met Jesus, been moved enough by whatever to start following him. They've heard his teachings already. They've seen some healings. They've just heard him talk about whatever their level of belief at the time they go up this mountain to pray with him, I can't imagine that included the absolute knowingness of what God says in that cloud, this is my son. Listen to him. That's an incredible experience. An experience for them pulled together a huge amount of symbolism. Symbolism full of religious power. And that symbolism likely was in their bones, in their DNA. There's Moses who appears. Moses, the embodiment of the law. Moses, whose face was changed, as we heard in our first reading, when he came down from the mountain. He came down from being in the cloud and encountering God. Then there's Elijah who's up there. Elijah, embodiment of the prophets. Elijah and Moses, who both ascended into heaven. 
here's where Jesus goes to pray with his disciples. Then the symbolism of sleep, sleep having two dimensions. Sleep as, a, as an experience of dreams where a lot of prophets got their messages, where, where Jacob had dreamed, where there was communication with God through dreams, but also sleep that blocks connection with God, that helps ignore and of the times that Jesus says over and over again, stay awake, be awake. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter and the others fall asleep, you know, Jesus is like, please stay awake. There's a symbolism of sleep there. And then the biggest symbol of all is the cloud. The biggest understanding of the cloud is that clouds, where Jesus, where God resides, God led the previously enslaved people out of, of slavery, out of Egypt, led by a cloud, led by this idea God was in the cloud, this dark cloud that went before him, and ultimately on the mountain where Moses goes up to meet God. So there's an idea that in these dark clouds, in this almost unknowingness, there is God beyond understanding. And here these guys are hearing this booming voice, this here this morning is to honor those experiences. Honor what is confusing, but where you have a sense that God is there. Honor the dignity, the little light of God, or the bright shining light of Christ that's shining through other people. It takes time for these disciples to integrate this experience, and it comes into its fullness after his resurrection, and whoa, talking with Moses, Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah on the mountains about his impending death, talking with the two people who ascended into heaven, now Jesus has ascended to heaven. And at this point, they start speaking. At this point, they become apostles, evangelists, going out into the world. Our second reading today is 